Hello and welcome to the TES Podagogy podcast, our new season. We are here today with Lee Elliott Major, who is the UK's first professor of social mobility, which is a post he holds at the University of Exeter. He's a founding trustee of the Education Endowment Foundation, and he was formerly chief executive of the Sutton Trust, where he commissioned and co-authored the wildly popular Sutton Trust EEF Toolkit. Last year, he co-authored a book entitled Social Mobility and Its Enemies, and his new book, What Works? Research and Evidence for Successful Teaching, is out in October. He was also the first member of his family to attend university, so he knows a thing or two about social mobility, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. So, I guess let's start off with the big question. Where are we at with social mobility at the moment in this country? So, we know that... In Britain, we are less mobile than many other similar countries for which we have data. So if you look at um, America, Canada, Australia, the Scandinavian countries, um, a bunch of European countries, um, we, we appear to have uh, lower mobility. What does that mean? That means that if you're from a poorer background, you have less chances of climbing the social ladder. Um, and what we, we know is, is that that's a particular problem at the extremes. So that if, if you're trying to get into that top echelons of society in Britain, it's particularly tough. And as we all know, we have now uh, the 20th Etonian uh, Prime Minister, um, who also went to Oxford as well. Every Prime Minister, every English Prime Minister since the war who went to university went to one institution Oxford. So these are amazing statistics at the top and we know that around 50 to 60 percent of leaders across a range of fields are from private schools. Private schools only make up seven percent of schools uh, and that figure has been stubbornly uh, sort of held for many decades from, from what we can tell in the book uh, that we wrote, uh, Social Ability and Its Enemies. Um, the other issue, which I think gets less spotlight in many ways, is, is the sort of stickiness at the bottom, if you like. Uh, and people talk about the forgotten third of pupils. Um, we talk about the long tail of underachievement. And that is a, a, a number of children, it's, we think it's around 20% at least, that leave school without, any, uh, without basic uh, literacy or numeracy. And my concern with that group of young people is, is, is that I think we're failing them to some extent and it's young people from similar families so often it will be with parents who themselves have come out of school without um, any, any sort of basic skills or even indeed grandparents so there's a sort of intergenerational uh, challenge there so, so Britain has low social mobility compared to other nations and it's particularly extremes that we, we have problems. Okay and you referred to education in this country as an arms race um, and highlighted the middle-class weapons uh, as being things like hiring private tutors to help you get through exams, even renting properties near good schools in order to get into the catchment area. Uh, can that be overcome when there's that level of kind of effort? How, how do we tackle that? So people are always surprised by my answers on this because I'm a passionate educationalist, I'd call myself, but I think there are limits to education, what education can do uh, for society. The reason I say that is because what we found in the book was that, that, that if you have extreme inequality, which I believe we do have in this country, and that's not just about earnings, that's about cultural capital, it's about wealth, whether you have a house, I think that has become more extreme over the last few decades. And the school system works really hard at trying to counterbalance those inequalities. 
Uh, but what you see is, is that those people with more money are putting in more and more resources into their children's futures. So you see this with the private tutoring boom over the last few decades. So the, the, you know, the, in London, it's about half of young people now, 11, 16, who get some private tutoring outside school. Incidentally, a lot of teachers are doing that tutoring, and I think that's because teachers aren't paid well enough. So there's this huge industry and it's not just about uh, paying fees for private schools, it's, it's about private tutoring uh, and other things. There's a huge industry around university admissions now as well, helping young people getting there. So, so I, I think there is this arms race. I, I think if you want to be serious about tackling social mobility and arms race, you have to do something about inequality outside schools. So that means paying people a decent wage at the bottom and it probably means greater taxation at the top, I think you have to do that as well as do something in education. And then the more I've thought about this, the more extreme I, I get over the years. Uh, I think the pupil premium money for, for disadvantaged students, I would increase that, actually. I mean, there's lots of debates about you know, whether it's been a good use of money up, up to date. I think we have to focus more, actually, on those children that, that need help in our school system. And I would have um, extreme measures for uh, university entry. So, again, university isn't for everyone, by the way, uh, but, but in terms of universities, you know, I, I would have um, uh, more use of contextual information so that if you have um, a lower A-level grade than maybe someone from a more privileged background, I, I think we should give university offers to those children because they've shown achievement in very difficult circumstances um, often. I would actually use lotteries um, for university entry where if you get over a certain grade, I think everyone is is pretty much the same these days. There's been this sort of escalation of grades. Uh, I mean, they're quite radical sort of mm. proposals, but I guess the, the reason I'm getting more radical with my, as I get older is that, you know, when you look at this data year in, year out, you realise just how uneven the, the playing field of life is. Mm. Uh, you've talked about the Scandinavian countries who do far better on these measures than we do. What are they doing that works? So I, I do think if you look somewhere like Finland, there have been reforms that have made the education system more comprehensive. So they, they, they did do away with selection in uh, the 1970s, I think it was. And you do see an improvement in social mobility that appears to have come from that. So I do think that they're probably more inclusive in terms of education. And I think there's a more of a, a sort of almost mastery approach to learning, which is that everyone needs to get above a certain um, uh, threshold. I think in this country we're still stuck with this sort of obsession with ranking everyone. So the latest GCSE results that have come out this year, you know, hardwired into our system is, uh, is uh, uh, that we will fail a certain proportion of, of children. I think we need a different system that does rank people in terms of maybe their acad the higher academic grades, but actually focuses on a basic threshold that everyone should surpass um, uh, overall. So I think that they, the, the Scandinavian do do better in terms of an, an inclusive um, education and remember a lot of teachers will have done masters. There. I, I think the status of teachers is higher in those countries which is so crucial. The other thing obviously interesting about them is they're more equal societies so there's less inequality uh, but in my TED talk uh, I, I speak about this um, I do think there are cultural differences as well. So, so success in Scandinavian countries. And I don't want to overstate this because I know there's a, a debate. Some some of the uh, my Scandinavian colleagues have come back to me since the TED talk because I was talking a lot about um, success in those countries. Is 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 seen as more of a collective uh, thing. So in fact, you know, people 
are almost embarrassed to celebrate celebrate individual uh, success. Um, and I, I feel in this country we've bought into the American dream concept, which is you know your background shouldn't um, stop you from being a success in life. But it's, it's quite an individualistic notion of success. So I think there's something cultural about celebrating more, for me, people that are successful by giving to others rather than just being successful in terms of their own self-financial worth, for example. That's really interesting. And the, the non-academic, so obviously, yeah, a lot of this is to do with grades and attainment and whether you go to university. But you've talked in the book as well about the non-academic side, these kind of skills that are helpful for learning, things like breakfast clubs and sleep education. How useful are these in terms of health and social mobility? So in the new book, uh, which is with Steve Higgins, uh, Professor of Education at Durham University, uh, and that really looks at a lot of the evidence we gathered for the Education Endowment Foundation toolkit, which, of course, most teachers now know very well. Um, and what, what we do in the book is we discuss uh, what works, and this is meant to be a really helpful sort of guide for, for, for teachers. I think one of the things that came out of writing the book, uh, so a lot of it's focused on attainment, you know, what, what are the things that seem to work best for improving attainment? And of course, we're particularly interested in, in children from disadvantaged backgrounds in regards to that. But I think both Steve and I, in writing the book, became more and more aware, and a lot of people have been talking about this, of course, is that actually what we want is, an, is a school system that nurtures not just attainment, you know, and I think we've actually got a bit obsessed with attainment, but, uh, for want of a better word, sort of um, life skills. And what, what do I mean by that? I think uh, there's the sort of the readiness to learn, uh, I think, approaches. So there's things, there's things like giving breakfast to children, I think a lot of schools are doing now. Um, there's, you know, uh, thinking about... We, well, there's one programme, the EF um, child, which was glasses uh, for classes, which is where we found that many children from poor backgrounds have been diagnosed with um, uh, needs, you know, the, the, with poor eyesight, but hadn't actually got glasses to address it and were subsequently being designated special education needs and so I think there's, 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 there's one group of programs which is really about for me about readiness to learn are, are you you know ready to, and I think sleep and exercise I mean I, I worry a little bit with this stuff because because I think how much can schools do but I think at the moment the reality is they're being asked to do these things so I think that we probably need a bit more discussion around which programs are most effective so there's a group of programs I think which I would broadly think it was readiness to learn and then I think there's another group of programs that many schools use now which is around what we call social emotional um, skills which is things like resilience um, self-regulation self-esteem and what we know is that if you model that as a teacher with with, with children it can be very successful um, in terms of boosting confidence so I you know I, I think most teachers I hope would agree with this that that schooling isn't just about key core attainment is also about preparing people for for life and I think that the, the system has got skewed too far to the the attainment side of things the other the other things that the schools are trying is, is parenting programs we have very little evidence of which programs work best but we know parents are really important so I think that's another area and then I think there's things I'm really conscious of arts and sports and extracurricular activities and the reason that I 
I think I think there's been a narrowing of the curriculum, so there's less people doing, uh, less children able to do arts and sports. And what we know is, is um, well, we think we hope there's a link to to back to attainment. But what we also know is that if if you do them well, that they lead to better confidence, esteem, leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. You know, in the book, which was really originally around what works for improving attainment, we came sort of full circle and said, actually, in many ways, we need to spend as much time thinking about, particularly for disadvantaged young people, uh, these other skills uh, as well as attainment. My argument would be also that these two things feed off each other anyway. The caveat to all this for me is how much resource money do schools have to do all this? And and that's why I think we need a sort of, I suppose, a bit more of a debate. One of the things I'm really excited by as a professor is working alongside groups of teachers to sort of have discussions about these uh, issues, to almost come up with a sort of explicit sort of strategy so the school is discussed. Because I think what's, what's happened at the moment is schools are just given lots of more things to do and they take on more and more. So it's sort of my challenge to head teachers is, you know, what is your strategy for all this stuff, uh, as well as your attainment, uh, your core attainment sort of activities? Yeah, I think there's, for those kids who do get the great grades and can go into, you know, these really high-flying institutions, I think that presents kind of challenges in itself. If you're from that kind of background where you're not familiar with, I remember when I was a teacher in Croydon, we had a kid who did brilliantly, he was going to do brilliantly in his A-levels, and he went to an Oxford Open Day, and he came back, and we were like, how was it? Like, what did you find? He was like, miss, they didn't even season the chicken. Mm. And it was, it was this really small thing, and we found it very funny, but it kind of spoke to a large issue, I think, of like, the people there have different clothes, different experiences, different accents. Mm. And I wonder if there is anything that schools can do to kind of address that, because it's that's like mm. a big kind of double bind. It's like you don't quite belong in the background that you're from or the one that you're moving into? So a lot of teachers do get in touch with me about this issue of cultural capital. So they have incredibly bright young pupils in their class or school, but they are children who they they should consider going to uh, leading universities. But because of where they come from, they, they, they think they're not for the likes of me. And when they do go to the open days, they find it all very alienating. I, I think one thing I would say with that is I am uh, doing sort of research around how should universities themselves change as institutional cultures. So there's lots of debate in the US about this, actually, about young people from less privileged backgrounds got into Ivy League universities who have then felt incredibly alienated when they're there and... It's, it's a really difficult debate because on one hand I, I know schools want to mean well by saying well actually let's give you some middle class cultural capital so you can survive but there's also a bit of me thinking well actually isn't it some of the institutions that we need to challenge as well so that they do things that accept diversity within their institutions rather than us trying to sort of convert everyone into a middle class you know person so um so my 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 views on that have changed over the years. I think I'm, I, I'm moving more to challenging institutional cultures to be more inclusive than necessarily having to change individuals. But I do realise that at an individual level, there are practical limitations that come from that. Yeah. And so the actual teachers, uh, in terms of teaching practice, are helping these disadvantaged kids get those top grades. You refer to the Bananarama principle mm. in your book. Could you explain what that is, please? So in, in the What Works book... You know, we celebrate the 
evidence-informed movement that's really been a, a revolution over the last 10 years or so. So teachers now talk about evidence in ways that you just didn't hear about so much um, previously. And of course the toolkit has been part of that change. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of caveat to all this though, and I think, and I think it's an important one. And, and, and so I think sometimes in the debates about evidence, the nuances get lost. So what, what, what we always wanted to do with the toolkit was to empower teachers to make better decisions in their classrooms, to give them what we called best bets. So it wasn't certainties, it was sort of, here's some evidence about other schools, right, and it's an average. We think this works better on average than other things. You do it in your school, but see if it works for you. And the success of the evidence sort of informed movement, I think some of those nuances got lost. So sometimes, uh, and I won't mention the government ministers, but some ministers or, you know, took this evidence that we produced and almost issued these sort of national diktats. You know, you will uh, do this or do that. And, and that was never our intention. And the banana R principle is important in all this because what the banana rama principle, and, it's, and it comes uh, for those younger teachers, um, it comes from, and my colleague Steve Higgins is the person who came up with this, by the way. Um, it, it, it says it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it that counts. It, it, it comes from a song in the 1980s that the Banana Rama um, did uh, with Fun Boy 3, I believe. Um, and there's a famous song, it's actually an Ella, Ella Fitzgerald song. Um, and when I used to do presentations on my talk, I used to actually play the song. Just And, and we used to, used to say to teachers, this is the one thing you're going to remember from this this talk. Uh, why is it important? Well, one, the, the, what, what is at the heart of the banana inference is, is that, so, so in the book and in the toolkit, we have a number of strategies we look at from, you know, setting, viability, one-to-one tutoring, uh, reducing class sizes, etc., uh, etc. Et but what you find is that there is a bigger variation within each strand than between them. So, so f- effective feedback is something that comes up really highly uh, in the toolkit, and and we we look into that in in the book. Um, the the thing about effective feedback is really hard to do, and and so even though it's a good bet done poorly, it can actually lead to you know. Um, poor outcomes so so this is a really really important principle this is because what what it shows you is that you can have the best sort of evidence informed program in the world but if it's not delivered properly if it's not delivered effectively then it won't work that well so so i think it it also speaks to, for me to the limits of evidence in the classroom evidence will never solve all the issues right it's going to help you as a as a, as a teacher think up through what you might do in the classroom, but it's never going to answer everything. And there's loads of examples of this. Um, setting viability is always one that I cite. And you know, we have these incredibly contentious debates about whether you should group by ability. In fact, we, in the book, we, we, don't, we refrain from using the word ability. We, we sort of talk about, because really you're, you're, you're grouping children on on their achievement to date, you know, the, so even the notion of ability we, we worry about, and, and that's obviously a practice that happens in lots of schools. What we, what we found was in, in the evidence is it, it's not necessarily whether or not you, you set by ability, it's how you teach the children one way or another. So, so if you do set by ability, if you have fl- genuine flexibility that you move children in different groups, that you, you have different settings for different subjects, Areas essentially, the more flexible the approach, uh, the, the better it is. 
Um, and what we also found actually was in setting that, pe- that the teachers tend to underestimate the heterogeneity in the class. So, so there's a huge amount of variation even within uh, top set. So, so, um, so as long as you uh, ensure that you're trying to personalise your feedback within a set, then, then that can be done effectively. Equally, mixed ability uh, grouping in class works well as long as you are attuned to the fact that, that, that there are some pupils that will need certain things that will be at a certain stage in their development and others uh, won't be. So it's not whether or not you should set one, but it's how you do it that counts. Now, on average, we in the book, we suggest that you should refrain from ability grouping unless you can be really sure that you are thinking about the, the, these things properly. Um, there's loads of other examples of Bananarama. I mean, the, the other one that got a lot of uh, attention, of course, was the use of teaching assistants. So we found that on average, and remember it's on average, they had zero impact on attainment. And I always remember having to present that in, in Cambridgeshire one end, last day of term in front of 200 TAs. And no matter how much I put caveats on that finding, they, they, it, it was received um, uh, in, interestingly, I should say, from the crowd. I was thrown a few, I think they threw a few things at me. But, um, but there, the point wasn't that we should sack all TA. The point was that managed well, trained well, and working well with teachers, TAs could have an amazing impact on, on pupils. It was, again, how you deploy the TAs. It wasn't whether or not you deployed it. So, so it's, it's a rule that, that, honestly, that goes through the whole research literature. And I think it's important for teachers because, for me, evidence is about empowering practitioners at a professional level, not uh, telling them what to do from some sort of national uh, perspective. Okay, and I think that feeds in quite nicely to the Goldilocks principle, which is another one in your book. Mm. Could you explain how Goldilocks links to So yes, yeah, so Goldilocks is, is really, I suppose, Bananarama's little sister in many ways, and you could classify it under, under Banana in some ways. And that's one of the things, so one of the things in the book that we're trying to do is flesh out the general principles that, that seem to... Uh, come up for diff- lots of different approaches, and Goldilocks is one of one of those. I mean, I think in in, in effect, in terms of effective feedback, I'm always and, and it's devilishly devilishly hard to do uh, giving feedback and receiving feedback from uh, from pupils. And and what we mean by Goldilocks, of course, is it's it's not too much and it's not too little. It's usually somewhere in between that that um, makes a an approach effective. And um, what what you find with with the evidence on effective feedback, and this is always easier said than done, is that what you want, of course, with with learning gains is to stretch uh, a, a, a pupil um, enough so that 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 there is stretch, right? So that it's not it's not boring material they already know, but that if you stretch too far, it's too much of a leap, and it's kind of that's one example of what we mean by Goldilocks is is, is judging the right. Uh, uh, challenge, if you like, in in in, in effective uh, feedback. By the way, effective feedback is another area where, you know, for me, learning is as as much about emotions as it is about cognition. And what you find with um, effective feedback is that children are judging. You know, if if the leap in learning is too wide. One of the things that they have is an emotional response, which is they don't want to be embarrassed in front of 
their class, right, to get things wrong. Um, so, so for me, again, another theme that runs through all the uh, approaches we look at is thinking about children's emotions as much as their their cognitive skills. I actually don't like this. There's a, there's a sort of in, in some literature there's a talk about cognitive and non-cognitive. For me, they're all cognitive to some extent. But I guess we're talking about things like self-regulation, self-esteem, confidence, those sort of other things. Um, good teachers, of course, are thinking about those and attainment all the time. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, another big one. Where do you think we are heading with social mobility? Like, if you had to call it now, say. 50 years time do you think things are getting more equal less wow that's a big question um what would i say i hate to be a do uh, you know depressing on this but i do worry for current generations growing up now the reason i say that is is in the book sociability and its enemies we looked at what we called absolute sociability so in many ways we've been talking about what in, what in the literature, the academic literature, we talk about relative social media. That's, that's who gets the opportunity, who gets the university place. And it's a relative game. It's a zero-sum game. Absolute sociability is, is a different concept. And that says, you know, how is one generation uh, compared, better off or worse off than the generation before? So how, how in real terms, are we uh, compared to our, our parents? So... Since the end of the Second World War, we've we've had a generally an increase in absolute mobility. So generally, people tend to be slightly better off than their the generation before, um, and that particularly happened um, immediately after the Second World War when people talk about the golden sort of boom of social mobility. The thing that we're we're, we're observing now, which is just really depressing, is that people growing up now are actually worse off. Mm. For the first time in many, in, in perhaps a century, than than their parents. Now, some people say that we're actually regressing back to the norm. That we've had this sort of twentieth century was the, the unique sort of flash, if you like, and that, that I find that even perhaps even more depressing. But but certainly, what we know is that opportunities, rather than expanding, seem to be shrinking. And you see this in terms of things like getting a house you know or, or particularly in places like london very expensive cities um and it's increasingly happening elsewhere in places like manchester um where young people aren't able to afford to even get on the housing ladder now in the way that their parents did so that's just one side of it. so 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 the, the the sort of the big picture if you like uh, is saying that things are going to get harder um i think Education for me will always have a part to play in transforming lives, in, in, in aiding social mobility. But I think if any government is serious about addressing social mobility, you have to one, you have to give schools the money to do things properly. And you know, we were talking earlier about you know all these other things that schools are doing outside the core you know, curriculum. What we find in the book that all these things need preparation, whether you're talking about attainment raising activities or other, you know, we underestimate the amount of time that teachers need to prepare, to train for these things. So I think one um, thing for me is that you have to invest more in education. I think you then have to think about how that money is used and all, all those caveats. But it seems to me that because of all the other cuts in social services and all these other 
things are coming the way, you know, schools are having to address all, all these issues, so I think you need to resource schools. Maybe you have one staff member that literally is dedicated to all those, uh, you know, the readiness to learn approaches that I was talking about earlier, the social and emotional programmes, the the arts and, and, and sports. Maybe you do need one person in each school to do all that. You need to pay for that. The other thing I come back to is inequality, and so you want economic growth um, in the country, but you want that to be inclusive economic growth. So, you know, it's great that GDP will go up, but at the moment, that economic growth will go to the very few at the top of society, I'm afraid. It's not inclusive economic growth. And, I, and I've been very interested in uh, some of the international debates about some countries like New Zealand who are now saying, well, actually, we're going to measure ourselves on well-being, not just economic growth. And that comes back full circle for me to the debates I, I'm talking about in education because I think uh, the education system should be measured on attainment but also uh, the well-being uh, of pupils. So I, I think um, for me we can improve social mobility but you have to make some really big decisions and that would be for me investing in education, addressing inequality and having inclusive economic growth. Those are all big challenges, right? If we don't do all that, I'm afraid that I think we are going to have declining social mobility. Okay. And uh, finally, so those are all huge sort mm. of societal yeah. uh, things that we need to look at. But for the, the people, the, head, the leaders and the, the teachers who are listening to this on a, an individual school level, what can they take away from this that they can apply to possibly help social mobility? So I, th I think, obviously, I will say this, but please read the book, What Works, because I think there are hundreds of tips, practical tips for teachers and leaders, school leaders, that will give you some best bets for improving the learning in the classroom. I would also say, secondly, that please think about the wider curriculum, the the well-being of, of children. And I know you're under so much press, pressure to narrow the curriculum, but I think we as a profession, I include myself in this, we need to stand up for a wider view of what outcomes or learning outcomes are for children. I think it's about emotional well-being and confidence as well as attainment. And again, in the book, we have some practical tips around what you might think about on that. But I think you should also, please, don't feel that you're under pressure to solve all of society's ills. And I do really worry for younger teachers going into the profession. I think a lot of the rhetoric around schools solving everything is, is unhelpful. That's not that we can't make a huge difference. It's just that we as a profession aren't responsible for all of society's ills. Okay, thank you very much, Lee. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next time.